continue our journey through the book of Luke today, I want to invite you to open your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, we'll make sure that you've got one. We've got plenty here. But as a Bible teaching church, we're going to be looking at, at the Bible itself. You don't, need to hear, uh, you don't need to hear my opinion. You need to hear God's Word. And so uh, if you don't have a Bible with you or you don't have uh, one of your own that you understand, well, just put your hand up and Mr. Todd will make sure you get one. Um, and Emma can help out too. We've got, got a couple of Bible passer-outers here today. That's a, the official term. The, the title is Bible passer-outer. Um, so as we are in this, we're continuing in our series called Dear Theophilus. And uh, we're progressing, albeit slowly here at the beginning, uh, through this introduction that Luke puts out here. So as Luke starts his his gospel, this story of the earthly ministry of Jesus, the life and time, so to speak. As Jesus is coming on the scene, Luke starts out by explaining to us exactly why he is writing this book. In chapter 1, you can thumb through this, let's all turn to Luke chapter 1, and then we'll thumb our way through. In Luke chapter 1, he says in verse 4, uh, he's writing this to his friend, most excellent Theophilus, most likely a, a member of Caesar's household, someone who has been converted, and yet, uh, and, and perhaps even many have, have said that this is uh, Luke's benefactor who is funding his project to be able to, uh, to put these letters together. I don't know about that. What I do know is that this person needs the strength of understanding for certain that the gospel, the doctrine that he has received is true, and it's worth believing. You and I need that same thing. We need a confident faith, not just a religious belief that we assent to, but something that matters, that drives us. And Luke, in verse 4, says that he, he's writing this so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. And then he goes on to give these introductions. He brings uh, John the Baptist in. Now, Something we need to know about Luke, this is a physician. He is a, a, not necessarily a supernatural-minded fellow as much as many in that day, uh, but is looking at sickness. He's looking at cause and effect. So as Luke explores this gospel, he's telling Theophilus, look, I've checked this out for myself, so I've undertaken to write this orderly account for you so that you can see what the certainty, but I've researched this myself. This isn't word of mouth uh, that's been passed along, I'm just accepting it. I've gone back and done the research. So Luke, as he's pulling this together, finds the things that verify the teachings that the apostles have, have passed on and the foundation for why these things ought to be believed. Luke, the doctor, a man of science, starts out with supernatural stories. He starts out with the birth of John the Baptist, and uh, the birth of Jesus. But before the birth narrative, he starts with the announcement. And you might remember, angels show up. Unusual for a man of start, science to start with an, an angelic revelation. He gives the historical context. Here's where it happens. Here's when it happens. And an angel comes and says to, to Zechariah, you and your wife, even though you're old folks, you're going to be having a baby. And not just a baby, but you're going to have the forerunner of the Messiah. Then he goes to Mary, even though you're a young folk, and you have never had a relationship with a man that would biologically lead to a baby, God has seen fit to give you a baby himself. The baby that will be in you will be God's son, will be the Messiah, sired by the Holy Spirit. Luke starts out supernaturally. Then he goes into the observations of it and the, the, uh, the story that we're all familiar with in Luke 2 uh, of the Christmas story and the shepherds and the angels, the combination, the meeting together of the mundane, everyday, common worker, the shepherds in the fields, and the host of heaven showing up. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, God in flesh, in a cow feeder. Luke is really careful to bring together all of the elements of the story, even the ones, maybe especially the ones, that seem far-fetched 
to our human minds because it's important. He wants to dig into this. He wants to be able to support it so that we can see what really happens. Pressing forward, we see Jesus growing. And in, in uh, chapter 3, John the Baptist is baptizing people. And those of you who were with us know his baptism symbolized an identification with repentance. The Jews had borrowed this, uh, this ceremony, this symbol, from the Greeks who used it to show a changing of the mind. I used to follow this philosophy, this way of living, and now I follow this one. And they used it as an add-on to symbolize for a proselyte uh, who had gone from being a Gentile and renounced their pagan ways and turned to, to the Jewish lifestyle, the Jewish religion, so to speak. Uh, they had renounced any foreign gods and turned to Yahweh. They would have also had to follow the Old Testament law, but part of this ceremony now that they added on, not commanded by God at that time, but added on, was to be baptized, to show the washing away of the old mind and a rising to a new mind. John the Baptist, on the other hand, is actually baptizing Jews. Kind of unusual, but for the same purpose, a changing of the mind, a repentance. I'm a Jew by name, by my practice, but I have been following my way instead of God's way, and now I'm turning from sin to follow the Lord, to commit myself to Him. Jesus comes and is baptized in chapter 3 along with the other people after them, but with them, to identify with that life of following the Father. That life of repentance, the everyday lifestyle of, of repentance, as Martin Luther would refer to it, that says, I will not follow my way, I will follow God's way. He had no sin to turn from, but he was identifying with living all out for the Father. And in this amazing event in chapter 3, God the Father opens up heaven and audibly speaks and identifies Jesus as the Son. He identifies him clearly. This is my son. Or in Luke's recording, you are my son. With you I'm well pleased. I love you. What a great moment. And the Holy Spirit, in an unusual situation for the Holy Spirit, manifests himself visibly in something that appears as if it were a dove and descends on Jesus. And we see all three members of the Trinity together in chapter 3 at the same time. Pretty difficult for the non-Trinitarians to deal with that particular passage. And then he goes on in the second half of chapter 3 to lay out the genealogy through Mary, lists Joseph because things were reckoned through the mail. And so, but he follows through Joseph's father-in-law and then all the way back to Adam to identify Jesus not only as God, a member of the Trinity as we see in the baptism, but also as fully human, able to represent us before the Father. So being fully God and fully human, Jesus now in chapter 4, finally getting to where we are, and we've been in chapter 4 for several weeks here because there's so much to unpack. We get to chapter 4, and Jesus is in the wilderness, led there by the Holy Spirit, after this phenomenal mountaintop experience, if you will. Now he's led into the wilderness, and he's fasting for 40 days. 40 days of no food. Not like I'm going to fast from meat, nothing. But he's being sustained by the presence of God with him. He's fasting from that which feeds the body to feast on that which feeds the soul. And in the process of this, the devil comes, confronts him face to face, and tries to get Jesus to take a shortcut to what he already owns. He tries to tempt him to sin. Jesus doesn't fall for it because he spent these days in the presence of God and he is filled with the word of God and the power of the spirit of God. Same tools that you and I have if we're in Christ. Jesus doesn't fall for it because he knows who he is. He knows what he owns and he is not afraid of anything that the devil might throw at him. Now, in the second half, we see 
Jesus beginning his public ministry. But in this first recording in Luke of Christ's preaching, he's still giving this introduction, this, uh, this identification of who Jesus is. We saw previously that he goes to Nazareth, his hometown. Uh, this is in, uh, starting in verse 13, or uh, 14 that is. And he uh, goes to, to Nazareth. He's been preaching in the synagogues around the area, gathering uh, at the gathering place uh, on the Sabbath, much like we would go to church. They're there for teaching. He does what they do, and he goes and engages with the people through the Word of God. And he's been amazing people. He's becoming the celebrity pastor, the celebrity teacher of the area, and everybody's excited. He goes home to his hometown in Nazareth. They're fired up. Hometown boy made good. We're going to see him uh, firsthand. Everybody's talking about our guy. He gets here, but when he speaks to them, they're amazed by his talent. They're amazed by the way he speaks and the things that he says until he makes a claim. Now, he claims to be Messiah, but that doesn't seem to set him off. The claim that he makes is that the message is for outsiders. The message is for those in other towns, not for you because you think you're special. And he cites two stories from the Old Testament. Elisha, uh, Elijah going to a, a Gentile widow in the midst of a famine in Israel. And Elisha healing a Gentile soldier when there are plenty of lepers in Israel. They get it. It's implicit, but it's subtle. But they know they're convicted by this, this truth. He says, listen, this isn't about people who think they deserve it. This is about those who will receive God's grace, who will humble themselves and turn to God. That's where the good news is. And just as he read from the scroll of Isaiah and said, I've been sent to proclaim this good news to the poor and the sick and the blind and the imprisoned, that's what I'm going to do here. They weren't worked up because he called himself the Messiah. They were worked up because they weren't good enough for him. They thought they were. Now, he leaves Nazareth. Probably a good idea. They tried to kill him there, and that seems like a good time to leave. But he was in no danger. There's no sign of panic because God was protecting him. And when God is protecting you, who can come against you? Who can come against you? Anybody? Is there anybody worth fearing? That's why David could stand against Goliath. It's not because David you know, thought, oh man, I'm really good with this sling. I'm going to be able to take this big guy out. <laughs> Even though the entire army of Israel was afraid of him. Even though King Saul himself was afraid of him. Mighty warrior, tallest guy in Israel. That's how they measured kings back then. I, I don't know. But anyway, as they're going through all of this, tall's, uh, Saul's the tallest guy in Israel, and then he meets Goliath, and it's like, um, no, I'm not doing it. But David isn't afraid because he comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus isn't panicked because he knows that God is protecting him. The Father is protecting him. So he walks right through the crowd. He does leave. He doesn't do the miracles in Nazareth in his hometown that he, uh, that he does in other places like Capernaum. And he goes back to Capernaum, which is the hometown of Peter, James, John, Andrew. It's a, a, a town right on the the northern end of, uh, of the Sea of Galilee. And as he gets there, he's teaching in the synagogues like he has been, but the reaction is much different. Let's take a look at the passage itself. <clears throat> We're going to start with verse 31. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath began to teach the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. Let me read that sentence again. We want to catch that. They were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. If you're reading God's word and you're trying to understand what it's saying, pay attention to repeated words. We'll see that amazement idea and authority come up again here. I'd underline it if it were me. I know that because I'm looking at it right here. So they, they were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. In the synagogue, where are they right now? They're in the synagogue. They're in church. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon. 
a little unusual in church it would seem, an evil spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Ha! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. Note again here in verse 36. All the people were, what's the word? Amazed. And said to each other, what is this teaching? With authority and power, he gives orders to evil spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. He just spoke to the fever. No more fever. She got up at once and began to wait on them. When the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness. And laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Christ. <coughs> At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we uh, enter into your word today, I pray that you would open our eyes, that we would be able to see what you have for us, and that as we uh, encounter this, that we would be able to understand with more than our own reasoning that your Holy Spirit would make it clear what you have for us. Protect us today, Lord, from, from my opinions or the opinions of anybody else that might influence this. Protect us from the influence of the enemy. Protect us from the draw of the world. Protect us from the cravings of our own flesh and our pride that might get in the way of understanding what you have. Lord, you have graciously given us an expression of your heart in your word. We want nothing more than to hear you. So Father, I pray now that you would speak beyond your servant's faltering tongue so that as we receive this word, your word might speak with authority and power. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at this text, there's one core reality that stands out. It's really simple. I tried to say a bunch of different things, but the bottom line all comes down to this. Jesus Christ is the Lord of all things. Say it with me. Jesus Christ is the Lord of all things. Now, we're going to talk about this a little bit as we go through here. We're going to see some observations about what Jesus does and see the implications of that uh, both in a general sense and in our own lives. But let's talk about this idea of what it means to be Lord. The idea of Lord is something that maybe we don't get really well uh, in Western society in general, in America in particular, we don't quite get the idea of a sovereign master, ruler, king, or lord. So the lord is one who is above everything else, who rules absolutely, has authority, means they have the right to command, the right to speak, the right to, to rule, and... The way they maintain that is to have the power to back that up. So a lord, a master, a ruler, a king, a sovereign needs to have authority and power to be able to do it. Authority is the right to rule. Power is the ability to rule, to be able to do what he says. Jesus is the lord of all things. He's the king of everything. He's the master. Everything falls under his domain. He has dominion over everything. What does Jesus have dominion over? Everything. That's confident. I like that. That's way better than the last time. So we're going to keep on going with this. I need you to understand that when we're talking about Jesus, it's not like following a popular author or anything like that. That's the contrast we see here, isn't it? Nazareth, they were fired up. They were excited because Jesus was popular. 
He was famous. He was growing, and they wanted to be able to ride that comet. But when he suggested that there was more to it than that, yes, I grew up here. Yes, you know me. Yes, you know my daddy. Not about that. You need a heart change. You need to repent. You need to get on your face before God to receive the Father. And if you don't recognize that you are a hopeless sinner in need of the grace of the Father, then you have no hope. You cannot be saved, and I will not do miracles to try and entertain you. Instead, you need the Word of God. Well, they didn't like that. But in Capernaum, he comes and he teaches the same message. Jesus' message is always the same. When we see it in, in Matthew and Mark, it's made clear for us. We'll see it as we continue in Luke. His message is, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Turn from your wickedness, turn to God. There is grace for all, but you have to turn to Him. There is grace for all, but you cannot be full of yourself. If you don't come with empty hands, you cannot receive what He has for you. And He preaches this message of the kingdom to the high and to the low, and as he gets to Capernaum, he's been teaching this message. They're amazed too. But notice what they say here uh, as we look at, at verse uh, 32. They're amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. They're not just amazed by the gracious words that come from his lips as we see in Nazareth. They're impressed because Jesus is a good speaker. He's eloquent. He's smooth. Maybe they think he's slick. I find that to be a pejorative term, so I'm not, not particularly <laughs> fond of it. But I think they think of him that way. He, they, they're picturing him as the Tony Robbins, right? He's, he's the big inspirational speaker. He's going to make us feel good. He's going to help us you know, have a better life, to be able to experience our best life now and be able to move forward. And that's what they're fired up about. Tell he challenges them. But in Capernaum, they're seeing the message with authority. And Jesus is speaking this message. He's teaching this message as one who has authority. When Jesus teaches the word of God, check this out now, he teaches the word of God as the word of God. John 1 says that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And it goes on to point out that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word is Jesus. He has been the eternal Word of God from before we had a written Word of God. So when Jesus is speaking about the Word of God, or He's reciting the Word of God, you're talking about the author of the book. So when He speaks, it's not like the other teachers. But it's significant that they see the authority in the message itself. There's a power to that. Jesus is not what they saw in Nazareth. He's not just a celebrity, not just some popular teacher or prophet or religious leader. We have all of those fallacies today. People will like to say, oh, you know, I, I don't really believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But he was a great teacher. He's a powerful prophet. Islam considers him a great prophet, just inferior to Muhammad. Muhammad came later and therefore is superior. Many of the cults see Jesus as a divine being in that he was created by God, it was one of us, and worked his way up to becoming God-like. There are a variety of different takes on that among the cultists. But that's not who Jesus presents himself as. Before I progress, let me just throw out the logic that C.S. Lewis presents in Mere Christianity. The, the logic of it is that Jesus cannot, absolutely cannot, be just a good teacher. And he cannot be just a prophet. Because he claims to be God. We've seen this already. The, the Old Testament prophecies of Messiah would, would be that he would be the Son of God, God in the flesh. Jesus identifies himself with Messiah. We're seeing this already. We're going to see it more as we go along. Later on in the story, as the Pharisees come against him, the more they balk at him being Messiah, the clearer he makes it. 
Jesus absolutely claims to be God. Well, if somebody claims to be God, there are only three options. They're a liar, a charlatan, trying to pull the wool over your eyes. That can't be a good teacher because a liar can't be a good teacher. Or they're woohoo, a little nutty, right? If, if you or I claim to be God, that's not too much different, since we're not, than if I claim to be a German shepherd. And I walk around on all fours and I bark like a dog and I try to convince you that I'm a German shepherd. That's when you get help for me and put me in a padded room. So Jesus is either a liar or he is a lunatic or he is exactly who he said he was. The Lord of all creation. The Lord of heaven and earth. If that's who he says he is, then he either has to be that or he cannot be the other things we claim him to be a good teacher, or a prophet speaking on God's behalf. Those options are not given to us. Luke is establishing in this particular dynamic here in the second half of this chapter, as he's giving us this story, could have included other things that, that the other gospel writers do, and he doesn't. He could have left this out because he establishes uh, the identity of Jesus before and after in a variety of ways. But at the outset of the gospel here, Luke is presenting us with the same choice that the folks in Nazareth, Nazareth and Capernaum had. Will you receive Jesus on your terms or on his terms? Will you admire him as a celebrity? Will you follow him as a religious teacher? Or will you fall down before him as the king of everything? Because there is a difference. If I follow a religious teacher, I can disagree with them. People, even, even in the Catholic Church, in the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope, when he speaks ex cathedra, is considered authoritative and infallible, and yet 70% of American Christians don't hold to the major tenets of the Catholic faith. 70% of American Catholics, sorry, I misspoke, of American Catholics who identify as Catholic, who may take communion to identify as Catholic, disagree with, don't believe in the basic beliefs that make someone Catholic. A religious leader, I can disagree with. But if I believe that there is a God, and I believe that this God has spoken to us, and I believe that Jesus Christ is God, and He is the Lord, the ruler. There's no room for disagreement. Because when I disagree with an omnipotent, all-powerful, sovereign ruler, it doesn't matter. It, it simply doesn't matter. All arguments fall away. When Jesus speaks, it's authoritative. Let's lean into this a little bit. As we read through this particular passage, there are four key observations about Jesus that we can make. But before we get to those observations, take a look at the difference in the choice between uh, Nazareth and Capernaum. This is what we need to recognize for our own choice. In Nazareth, Jesus was rejected based on their expectation. They thought one thing, when Jesus didn't live up to their expectation, they rejected him. In Capernaum, he was received based on, based on his demonstration. He showed up, they recognized his authority, he demonstrated that he was authoritative to rule and powerful to act against spiritual forces and physical forces, and they received his message. So much so that they selfishly wanted him to stay. Their motives weren't necessarily great. He's healing everybody. Hey, don't leave. We are not done. We got more sick people. Come give us more stuff. In the process, however, as they're receiving the healing, as they're seeing demons come out, they're hearing the message of God. That's where Jesus' priority is. He starts with the message, and as he departs from there, he continues teaching in the synagogues. He prioritizes over the miracles the mission of the message. 
That's where he's going. In Nazareth, he was rejected based on their expectation. But in Capernaum, he was received based on his demonstration. The choice will always be for you. Will you be so disappointed that God is not who you think he is, that you will reject him for who he is? Or will you be willing to drop your demands of who God should be in your mind to take him at face value, so to speak, to accept God as he really is, not as you wish him to be. So often we get disappointed with God. Kind of a silly concept in some ways, but we expect God to do certain things. I believe God would do this. My God would act this way. My God would never say that. If that's the case, then the God that you worship is not the God who is Lord of all. Because God cannot be mine in the sense of a dog or a, a, a pet on a leash that does what I tell them. Dance, monkey, dance. God's not that. God's not a vending machine. He's not, you know, you put in the right code and you get the right output. He is the sovereign one. C.S. Lewis in, in the Chronicles of Narnia, many of you are familiar with those stories. When you see Aslan the lion, that is the picture of Jesus Christ. That is the picture of the one who is not safe, but is good, who can devour you without even thinking about it, and yet loves you more than you can comprehend. When we're ready to accept Jesus as he is, then we are ready to submit to his sovereignty. All right, so some observations about Jesus from this passage. First off, notice he instructs with the insight of an insider. He instructs with the insight of an insider. He went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. As he's teaching, Matthew and Mark record the same thing. They all uh, are in unison in saying that the people are amazed at his teaching because he doesn't teach like the teachers they're used to, the, the scribes and the Pharisees. All of them have religious teachings and they're well schooled and they know all the right things to say. But Jesus teaches as one with authority. The contrast is that between one who knows about these things and one who is on the inside. The difference between me telling you about somebody's book and the author of the book. Jesus instructs with the insight of an insider. He speaks the word of God as the word of God. He teaches with authority because he actually has authority. Secondly, we see that he has dominion to deliver from demons. You might put in parentheses from darkness. He has the dominion to deliver from demons or from darkness. In the synagogue, there's a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Yes. I know who you are. Of course you do. The Holy One of God. Now, there's an interesting thing that we need to bear in mind. Jesus is the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. That's not in your notes. You might want to jot that down. Genesis 3.15, in the garden, when sin happens and the whole system breaks, God pronounces upon the man and the woman and the serpent certain consequences to this sin. And the, the curse that he puts upon the serpent includes this crucial prophecy in verse 15 that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. The serpent will bruise his heel, but the seed will crush the serpent's head. This is a reference to Messiah. All through the rest of Scripture, God's people are looking forward to the promised seed, the serpent crusher. Messiah comes, Jesus, the, the serpent crusher, the dragon slayer, comes, and the demons know exactly who he is. 
They recognize it. Notice, Jesus doesn't engage the demon. When he shows up, the demon is petrified. James writes of this in his letter. He says, you believe that there's one God? Awesome. So does, so does the devil. The demons believe that too, and they shudder. When Jesus shows up, the demons tremble. And he shouts out, why are you here? Are you here to destroy us? In another passage, in another gospel, the demon in another man cries out, are you here to destroy us before the appointed time? There are time the time will come when Jesus will destroy all demonic presence. And hell itself will be cast into the lake of fire. That's not this time. The demon recognizes that that's his destiny. Not happy about it. He sees Jesus and he responds. Notice the, how Jesus reacts though. There's no drama. There's no fanfare. He doesn't put a sign outside that says deliverance ministry here. Come bring your, your tithes and offerings here so we can have a revival meeting. We're going to kick out demons. We're going to be a bunch of demon, demon hunters. And, and No, none of that. He says, be quiet. Get out. No drama, no fanfare, just calm authority. Notice the demon doesn't argue. There's no back talk. He gets one last attempt as he throws the guy down, but even with that, he doesn't injure him. And he leaves. There's no more conversation. Jesus isn't debating with the demon. Why would the lion give a hoot about the opinion of the sheep? Get out of here, demon. You don't belong here. The demon goes, and Jesus moves on. The man was in darkness, being possessed by this evil spirit. He could not see. This is exactly what Jesus had said in Nazareth. I've been sent to proclaim sight to the blind, to set the prisoner free. Here in Capernaum, he actually is doing it. All of which is only a temporary fix if this man doesn't receive the Holy Spirit of God. We'll see more about that as, as we go along, and Jesus has other times when he removes a demon from the scene. But it's always about receiving the Son. The gospel is the heart of it. And Jesus gets to that even in this particular setting. He, he instructs with the insight of an insider, he has the dominion, he has dominion to deliver from demons. Notice also, <clears throat> his sovereignty supersedes sickness. His sovereignty supersedes sickness. You like that, don't you, Gabe? I see that grin over there. Jesus, because he is God... Because he is sovereign, he is the ruler, he is the Lord of all things, there is no part of creation that is not under his rule. There isn't a square inch in the universe over which Christ does not declare mine. So when Jesus says, no more fever, Show me the universal symbol for how much fever is left. There is zero fever left. Not even the residual effects. If you've ever had a really high fever, we're talking about, you know, this isn't just like, oh, I got a little 99 temperature, you know, I feel a little bad, give me that bare children's aspirin. This is, uh-oh, we better call the emergency room. This is the near-death kind of fever, brain-swelling kind of fever. Everything is, is, you know, I'm just messed up. And when that fever breaks... You are exhausted. There's a residual effect, isn't there? The fever's gone, but you still feel the effects. That doesn't happen here. Jesus says no more fever, and there's no after effects. She's not laying around thinking, oh, praise the Lord, I've been healed. She gets up and starts serving them. She's not thinking, thank you, Jesus. Now let me get a little Pepto-Bismol. My tummy's still a little upset from this. No. No gets right into it. 
Jesus is sovereign over everything, including the lack of health in our fallen world. Now, sickness exists because of sin. That doesn't mean that you have a cold because of your sin. It means that sickness exists in the world. Death, decay, disorder, the law of entropy all exists because sin is in the world. Because we live in a fallen place, we are not in Eden anymore. Until the time when Christ returns, sickness and death will reign supreme in this life. But even over the reign of death and sickness, Jesus remains supreme. He is the sovereign, the ruler, the king of everything. There is no sickness that can come upon any of us that is not within his reign. And notice we see both of these things and what happens next. After he heals uh, Simon's mother-in-law, later on we'll call him Peter, but after this happens, they, uh, this is all still on the Sabbath, in verse 40, when the sun is setting, that's significant, they're, they're pointing out here that the sun is setting because the Sabbath lasted until sunset. It was against the law to do work to carry these sick people on the Sabbath. So in keeping with the law, when the sun goes down, now we're good to do it. Sun's going down, bam. We're going to bring everybody to have Jesus do. Notice they're not complaining that he heals her. There's no effort. There's no work. He just said, leave. And they left. But now the sun goes down. They start bringing all kinds of people together. And we see both of these things come together. His dominion over demons, his sovereignty over sickness. Jesus now says, okay, if you've got sick people, I'm going to heal you. But he doesn't hang out a shingle. He doesn't have a big revival tent meeting. Healing ministry here. Put your hands on the radio. Send me your money. None of that. None of that. Side note. That is all hucksterism. That is charlatanism. That is not Christian ministry. I'm not telling you that there isn't healing that can take place, but when we are selling that healing, we are not doing the will of God. We are not following the example of Christ. Jesus does what he does to accompany the word, but the priority is always the word. Always. They bring the sick people to Jesus. He doesn't have an internet campaign to try and drum up business. They come. And while they are doing this, it says that demons came out of many people. Now, let's, let's look at this. Let's read this carefully. Starting with uh, verse 40. When the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness. And laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. Now, do you see anywhere in the text that it says Jesus cast out those demons? That Jesus drove those demons out of people? Now, that's possible, but as I read this, the way Luke words it, it strikes me as being very similar to what happens in the synagogue earlier in the day. Jesus is there. This demonic presence recognizes the presence of God and is petrified. Jesus commands it out at the time, and he rebukes it and tells it to be silent. But here, as this healing is taking place, as people are coming, recognizing that Jesus is, is the one who has dominion over these things, the demons know it too. They seem to be coming out on their own. Jesus is here. I don't want any part of this. And then they say these weird things. It's funny how often this happens, that these demons declare Jesus to be the Son of God. Does that ever strike you as strange? Doesn't that seem a little surprising? Wouldn't you think that a demon would want to try to convince you that he's not the Son of God. Well, Satan tried that. It didn't work so well. The devil's pretty tricky. He loves this pendulum. We talk about it a lot. 
He likes to take you from one extreme to the other. And if he can get you to believe that Jesus isn't the Son of God, if he could get Jesus to choose the shortcuts in the wilderness so that he can't be the Messiah because he's got sin of his own, he can't, can't come and save us from our sin, or if he can convince us that Jesus isn't worth believing, he, he's successful with that in Nazareth, isn't he? He gets them to reject him and not believe at all. But in Capernaum, there's a subtle twist here. Let's see if we can't undermine his authority by connecting with him. It's a little bit like if, if I'm uh, the head of the mafia, right? Let's say this is the 20s and I'm Al Capone. And I see a, a uh, Elliot Ness who's out there and everybody says, wow, this guy, you know, he's a threat. But he's an upstanding guy who represents the law. But if I can act like we're friends, if I can get people to believe that he's on the take, to believe that this cop is connected with my organization, I can undermine his authority. The devil will very readily try to connect the things of darkness with the Lord of light if it will undermine his authority. This is why we see pastors preachers, those who would claim to be authoritatively teaching the Word of God, distort the Word of God. To say, well, we believe in the Bible, but we don't believe that it really means what it says in this instance. Maybe it did, you know, long ago, but that, you know, that was a different time. And so, whatever the particular hot topic of the day is, and it may change from generation to generation, Right now, we deal with all sorts of gender identity issues and, and uh, orientation issues and so on. That's, those issues are never the issue. They never have been. Sin has always been available to God. All sorts are to Satan. All sorts of, uh, of uh, confusing things in life have always been there. The battlefield is for the authority of God's word. When we begin to have churches that say, you can have Jesus on your terms. They're doing the same thing these demons are doing. Trying to identify the darkness with the light as if it's the same thing. And yet, in the Old Testament, the Word of God says, Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. Notice, in case you're not sure um, about this particular thing, Oh, well, I didn't put the reference down. In John, we'll, we'll get to it when we get there. We see it in, in Luke, uh, I think it's a little later on. Uh, the Pharisees see Jesus casting out uh, demons. No, I do have it. Let's go to Matthew so you can actually see it, not just take my word for it. Matthew chapter 12. We'll see it again in Luke 11, but let's take a look at it in Matthew since we're already in Luke. Just back up to the left a little bit. This is a continuation of the same strategy that the devil is using here in Capernaum. Matthew chapter 12, we're going to pick up with verse 22. Now, it's a different setting, but Jesus is again dealing with, uh, with casting out demons. He's delivering people from their darkness because of his dominion over the demons. And Matthew records it this way. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. Luke only records the muteness, not the blindness. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people, <clears throat> excuse me, all the people were astonished and said, "Could this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah?" But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus refutes their argument. But this is exactly what Satan's trying to get them to do. If you can't get them to not believe that he's doing these things or that he's capable of these things, then get them to think he's on our side. That we are somehow connected that there's no difference between pagan sorcery and the authority of God's word. It saddens me when I see Christians dabble in the occult. 
We've seen this for a long, long time. For as long as there has been Christianity, people have been confusing things because that's what the devil does. When I was a kid, it was probably more popular than it is now, but we would see Christians being intrigued with Ouija boards, being caught up in horoscopes, going to psychics. All of this dishonors God. You and I must know this. This is not fun stuff. Drop the what's your sign garbage. It dishonors God. It does exactly what this demon is trying to do by associating darkness with light. So that pagan sorcery, witchcraft, psychic mumbo-jumbo, not that it's not real, but it is demonic. A lot of it's not real. A lot of it's, that's so raven, that's just a TV show, right? But all of these things that we try to act as if they're innocent things that, you know, oh, I just, I want to know something about my future. If you find your future out from a demon, that's bad. I'm not kidding. I'm not trying to overstate this. Jesus is unwilling to allow them to say what is true because he will not have hell testify on behalf of heaven. He is unwilling to have that in the life of those who follow him. Reject it. Reject it immediately. He instructs with the insight of an insider. He has dominion to deliver from demons. His sovereignty supersedes sickness. And lastly, and I think in some ways... Most importantly, he prioritizes purpose over popularity. Jesus prioritizes purpose over popularity. Picking up with verse 42, at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. They received his message. They got it. They understand whether they have grabbed onto the full gospel or not yet, they get it. When he speaks, he speaks with authority as an insider. When he speaks to the demons, there's no playing around here. It's not some magic incantation. He simply commands and they must obey. When he says sickness be gone, the sickness is gone. We're going to take this guy seriously. Please don't leave us, Jesus. We need more of this. But notice what he says. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also. Because that's why I was sent. Now don't, don't miss in verse 42 that at daybreak, now this has been a long Sabbath, hasn't it? So he's preaching in the synagogue. He gets to, to sunset. And they're bringing all the people from the community who have something to heal. And he's healing them. This obviously is going on into the night. It doesn't start until sunset. So he's got demons coming out of folks. He's got sickness and disease leaving folks. And as he's dealing with this, probably not getting a bunch of sleep. But he still prioritizes a time of prayer. Luke doesn't mention prayer specifically, but Matthew and Mark do. Mark in chapter 1, as he's talking about this, says that he goes to a solitary place to pray. Jesus needs time with the Father. So do you and I. He makes this such an important priority in his life because he came with a purpose. The Father sent him, as he read from Isaiah, to proclaim this good news to everyone, including the outsiders. He could not settle in and say, hey, you know what, I've got a good following here. This is a pretty good gig. They're going to take care of me. I'll just keep healing people. People will come to me, and that'll be great. You know, we got a pretty good church. I, I, the synagogue's got this pretty, pretty kicking uh, Hebrew band going on now. And so, you know, we got a nice facility. We got the synagogue air conditioned. So people will come and then they'll be drawn to God. No, he says, I need to go. I got to go out to the people because people are living and dying without God. That's why I came here. You and I have the same mission, to go and preach the gospel to everyone. That doesn't mean preach the gospel, stand up in front of people and deliver sermons. 
It means proclaim the truth that Jesus Christ came to save all of us. If we'll simply receive the gift that he offers, we can be saved. Jesus is not interested in popularity. Notice, he wasn't phased by being rejected in Nazareth, and he wasn't impressed by their being impressed with him. Their amazement didn't amaze him. Therefore, he wasn't tied to them. He was not seeking the adoration of fans. He didn't need fans. But he was calling followers. We'll get to that next week in chapter 5. He was calling people to follow him, not because he needed a pat on the back, but because we needed to be saved. Jesus came with a purpose. That's his priority. He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also, because that's why I was sent. He prioritizes the mission over the miracles. The message matters more. That's his point. It's always fixated on the word of God. That's where true deliverance comes from. You want victory over the demons? Know the word of God. Understand the truth of the good news and what the power of your identity in Christ means. Because if you're outside of Christ, then you're kind of in danger. Here and in the hereafter. You can't make it on your own. You can try. You're free to do that. Christianity has always espoused religious freedom more than any other religion. We don't try to, uh, because we're not a religion, but that's another discussion. So as we're seeing this, Christianity has been at the forefront of promoting religious liberty. Because we believe you have the right to choose to die apart from Christ. It's a bad choice, but I can't force you. Jesus doesn't do that. He proclaims the good news. He demonstrates the power. He demonstrates the love. And as he does all of these things, we get to see who he is. And when we see him for who he is, we're drawn to him. If we'll just let go of our pride and recognize that he is our only hope. Jesus is the Lord of all things. He instructs with the insight of an insider. He has dominion to deliver from demons and darkness. His sovereignty supersedes sickness. But despite the fact that he is worthy of all our praise, he prioritizes purpose over popularity. Jesus knows who he is. God is full and complete in himself. And he's made us to worship him. That's what we're for. That's why we're here. That's why we exist. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And if we don't do that, then we're not living out our purpose. And we will find ourselves not only dissatisfied in this life, but condemned in the next that's not a good place to be. Why does it matter? Why does all this stuff matter? Because Jesus is not just a teacher to follow or a celebrity to admire. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. We have to see him as such to receive him as such. If you think that you can be saved because Jesus is your homeboy, you are not saved and you will not be saved until you get past this image of the soft, easy Jesus who does not care about sin. His message is repent and be saved. But His offer is to do the saving for you. He paid for our sin. When Jesus died on the cross, being fully God and fully human, he was able to represent us and to be the serpent crusher. He was able to take all of our sin and put it on himself because he didn't have any. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. 
but we have to unwrap the gift. He purchased it. He offers it. But if we refuse to receive it, it's as if it has never been given to us. You have to make that choice. What difference does it make in my daily walk? If Jesus is the Lord of all things, if He is sovereign, if he is the ruler of everything, spiritual and physical alike, then I have to daily surrender to him. I have to daily surrender to him in the same way that a beggar would to a king. Ditch the pride. It means nothing. I have nothing to offer God. He doesn't save me because I've done my best. My best means nothing. In my very best moments, I still fall short of God. I need the king to show me mercy. In my daily walk, I need to recognize that only in Christ am I saved. I have to receive him as both Savior and Lord because he won't do only one or the other. If I live for Him, I belong to Him. If I live for me, I'm not saved. When I see Him as He is, it impacts my obedience. I also see that since He rules everything, I have nothing to fear. No chains can bind me. Not spiritual chains. Whatever has been bound in me by my sin or by demonic oppression... All curses are broken in Christ. He has shattered every chain. Whatever I might fear physically, death, disease, dementia, all of these things that can overtake me, Jesus has authority over all of them. His sovereignty is bigger. Ultimately, we are all destined by God to die. At some point, short of him coming back and taking us in this form. Only because all of us fall under the curse of sin. But it cannot happen until God determines it's your time and you are ready. If you die apart from Christ, it's because God knows it's time. We're done. If I die in Christ, it's because God knows that I am ready to receive the reward that He has in store for me. That I've come to the place of maturity that I need to be at. He knows what He's doing. I have no need to fear when I am part of His reign, when I'm in Christ, when the sovereign is on my side. No demon can torment me. He's got that handled. We're at the very beginning of his ministry, and he demonstrates that he's got it handled. It's not even work for him. No sickness can overtake me because he's got it handled. If I get sick, it's because it's serving God's purpose. Somehow in this, I'm being conformed to the likeness of Christ, who suffered on my behalf. And every opportunity I have to suffer gives me an opportunity to identify with him and understand it better. We're not great with suffering, especially here in the U.S. We don't get it. We think it's suffering if, you know, something interrupts our TV show or gas prices get above $3. Life is horrible and we don't know what to do. I have a headache, so my life shuts down. Believe me, I understand headaches. But let's not act like there's no suffering to be had. In all of these things, when we recognize that Jesus is Lord, that He is in command of all things, then we can receive what He has for us. But we have to fall on our face before Him. When we do, when we fall on our face before God, when we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, one of the one of the important things to recognize is not just lips, but confessing from within, believing it enough that I'm not afraid to speak it. 
And we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. In other words, that he is exactly who he says he is. And that the work has been completed. Then we will be saved. Jesus is Lord of all things. Let's accept him as that. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, what a privilege. So often I forget about this privilege, this, this privilege of calling the king my father. To know that we belong to you. To know that there is nothing beyond the scope of your sovereignty. Father, we thank you for Jesus and that you have set him above all things. Every power, every dominion in the universe subject to him. All of creation doing exactly what he commands it to do. Through him all things created. In him all things sustained for him all things working together for your glory and for our good Father teach us as we end this service today that there's power in the name of Jesus that we're, when we are in Christ all that is spiritually true of Jesus is spiritually true of us that when we are in Christ, there is no chain that can bind us. Father, raise us up as your army to go forth in battle under your sovereign rule to lift your name on high. We pray this in the precious, mighty name of Jesus. Amen.